In the first session of our public worship, this Lord's Day, we considered the promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament prophets, a promise of God to do something in the future um, to inaugurate formally a covenant in space and time through the servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant, to inaugurate that covenant, which ends up being the covenant that benefits all the elect of all time. The, the benefits procured, earned by Jesus, um, become ours by virtue of what he does for us. But all this was promised in the Old Testament. It wasn't historically accomplished yet, but it was promised to be historically accomplished in the future. And so we looked at Jeremiah 31, we looked at Jeremiah 32, we looked at Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel speaking about the same covenant in the same future days using different language, slightly different language than Jeremiah, but speaking about the same thing in the future. Then uh, I presented a little pushback Somebody could say, yeah, those are Old Testament Jewish texts. Those are promises for only Jews. They were made to Jews, therefore they have to be fulfilled to Jews. And I could push back on that and say, well, they were made to Jews that were then living, so the then living Jews that got the promises are the ones they have to be fulfilled with, which nobody says that. Um, what does the fulfillment of those promises look like? Well, it looks like what the New Testament ends up doing. And so we looked at a broader scope than just the new covenant promises in the prophets, but the servant promises, the light to the Jews and the Gentiles, when this messenger of the covenant comes, this servant of the Lord, according to Isaiah 53, we looked at broader other texts, light texts, revelation texts, that pertain to the future, that terminate on both Greeks, the Jews, the people, and the Gentiles, the nations of the earth. And the reason why we did that is, is to show you that the, uh, the new covenant promises ended up being that which Christ brings to his people. And then I showed you that through incarnation texts, like the Simeon, the Luke 2, and then proclamation texts, after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, Paul is still going back to these passages in Isaiah and saying, this is being fulfilled. We are commanded to do this. And what's happening is light is coming, the revelational light, saving light, saving knowledge, is coming to both the people and to the Gentiles uh, all over the earth, we could say. All that in fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised. Now, our confession of faith says this in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is entitled, Of God's Covenant. And here's what it says in paragraph 3, just the first part. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. Now, if you read it in context, it is this covenant that is the covenant of grace. Uh, the covenant by which we, uh, we get benefits. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to the church in the New Testament. 
Somebody say no. That's not what it says. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to the prophets. At the end of Israel's history before John the Baptist came on the scene. No, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. So they're saying there's a covenant revealed, gospel covenant revealed in the promise concerning salvation by the seed of the woman. That's the Genesis 3.15 text. So there is a, the covenant of grace is first revealed in the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Okay, so it has a promissory form when it's first revealed. The promise of a covenant. This is good news because that promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman is given in the context of a curse upon the serpent, which ends up being blessings for man. We've talked about this before. Some people don't think Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, refers to Christ at all because it's a judgment uh, curse announced against the serpent or the Satan or the devil. It's not a gospel context at all. However, if you study the Bible, there's a lot of times where in the midst of judgment, mercy and salvation comes. Is the, is the flood judgment or mercy? The answer is, well, yes. It's judgment on most people, but it was actually if the ark or the church, excuse me, the ark, um, was a form of mercy in the midst of judgment, right? We could say the same at Israel's exodus out of Egyptian bondage while God's judging, God's saving at the same time. Of course, we could say that on the cross, while God is judging, God is saving, so that the precedent is set by virtue of the curse upon the serpent that the way God is going to act in the world is mercy in the midst, judgment and mercy together. And you learn that by reading the whole Bible, and you go, ah, I get it. That one sets the stage for the divine acts in the world. Salvation is going to come to us by virtue of God judging and saving, sometimes in the same exact event. So our confession says, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps. That's an old way of saying, then progressively revealed until, so then it's this progressive revelation has a a wall it hits, a terminus, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament around the sufferings and glory of Christ. That's our confession about this covenant of grace. I think that's exactly what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were promising. The the formal inauguration of the gracious covenant. Not the first revelation of it. The first revelation of this covenant of grace comes in the form of the promise, the gospel promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. 
its full discovery, its formal historical inauguration, is by virtue of the shed blood of Christ. This is the blood of the, what did Jesus say in the night in which he was betrayed? New covenant, Luke chapter 22. And then those texts again, the Jeremiah, the Ezekiel texts. There's, there's two words that occur over and over and over that are actually wonderful words. I will, and it's God, I will, I will. Everything promised in, those, in that covenant is given. Okay? We don't earn them. We don't earn these benefits. They are given. Several times God says, I will, in both of those passages. The result of those I wills for man is pardon of sin, a new heart, and obedience to the law of God. Everything required is provided. Have you ever heard that before? I say it almost every week. If you haven't heard, you need to wake up and listen, I guess. Jesus is both the servant, remember Isaiah, and the messenger, Malachi, of the covenant who obtains its blessings for us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Where do you think he got that from? And to give his life a ransom for many. He got that from the Old Testament. You ever think of that? The incarnation was for the purpose of God the Son to serve us. That seems wrong, uh, in, inverted, right? We should serve him. We, we, we can't, unless he first serves us grace. So in this sense, the new covenant is not like the old covenant. The blessings of the old covenant were conditioned upon Israel's obedience to the law. You can read that in uh, Exodus 19. You can read that in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And there's a lot of places where blessings for Israel are contingent upon obedience by Israel. And to the degree that there were well, there was obedience, to that degree there was blessings. To the degree that there was disobedience, to that degree there were covenantal curses. But in the new covenant, God bestows all the blessings of the covenant upon all its members for the sake of Christ and Christ alone. As a result of what God does to them and in them, they obey. Everyone in this covenant has something done to them, in them, and by virtue of that, they have an external show of it. They have an obedient life. Of course, not perfectly, but they have an obedient life. However, their obedience, that is those in this covenant of grace, this new covenant, their obedience is not a condition to be met in order to be blessed. If I'm going to get uh, the law written in my heart, if I'm going to get the spirit from God, if I'm going to get the forgiveness of sins, if I'm going to get the saving knowledge of Yahweh, that's a condition I have to meet. I have to obey to get those things. We're saying, no, that's not how it is. Our obedience is not a condition to be met in order to be blessed. Our obedience, to the degree that we have it, is the result 
of having been blessed by this, by the grace of this covenant. If we have obedience, Christian sanctification, sometimes it doesn't look very Christian. Uh, by the way, Christian sanctification is not perfection. We're not perfectionists, right? It's sometimes sanctification is pretty messy. Matter of fact, it's always pretty messy. Um, but to the degree that it's following the law of Christ, as Paul says, to that degree, it comes from grace. It's not moving to grace. Okay? You should come to church not to be saved, but if you're lost, you should come to church to be saved. Uh, we should come to church as believers because we're saved. We have the fear of God in us. We have a new heart. The heart of flesh, was, stone was taken out. The heart of flesh was inserted. This is a metaphor for the divine surgery on our souls. Our physical hearts aren't plucked out, and then new eschatological hearts put in there, and then God zips it up like he did Adam or something like that. It's nothing like that. It's an internal work of the spirit of grace renewing us, giving us new eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, writing the law on our hearts, giving us the ability to respond to the law of God um, out of love and gratitude instead of out of a sense of a mosaic terror or something like that. This covenant changes us from the inside out and any obedience that comes by the citizens of the covenant comes from grace, not a work to grace. We're not trying to, we don't, you shouldn't look as, as Christian obedience as, I want to get some things from God. You know, I would like this, I would like the other, so I'm going to start obeying him and put him to the test. It's like, no, you do what he says because he saved you. You don't do what he says because you get the goodies. Oh, oh, by the way, we get goodies because they were earned for us and given to us not because we obey to them. So the blessings of this new covenant are secured by Christ's work for us and Christ's work for us um, alone. And this is why we sing a very important hymn. Hymn number 441. We'll probably sing this later. But listen to these words by Horatius Bonar. He's uh, basically saying many things I've been trying to say, but he says it in lyrical fashion. This is hymn 441. By the way, this song could be sung by all believers of all ages. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. You know the words very well. To whom save thee? Who canst alone for sin atone? Lord, shall I flee? No one. Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree, have paid the law's full price and purchased peace for me. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? Where where are you going to go for the forgiveness of your sins? Who's going to cleanse you from your sins, from your guilt and sins? Who's going to award you with a righteousness, not your own, that gains you glory in heaven. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. 
To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? See, he says there are the crosses, the burdens, the difficulties of our lives that come to us by virtue of being Christians, not mere fallen creatures in a fallen world, but Christians, those kind, that cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful, awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. So even the, the difficulties that come to us by virtue of being Christians, for us, it's really not that much at all. And I hate pulling this card out, but go to a third world country. We're not persecuted. Our crosses are to be borne by us, um, not because we realize if we make it through this crisis, we'll earn righteousness with God. But we are to look at our Savior as not only our wrath-bearer on his cross, but also as our example-setter, who for the joy set before him endured all he did for us, and now we are to endure the little that he calls us to for him, the little difficulties compared to the difficulties he endured for us. We are to, we are to endure those with joy, by grace. You ever seen a Christian going through a very difficult time and yet they, they, they seem joyful. They, they, they still go to church and they still serve and yet they got all this big mound of trial come in, in their life. God, God sustains us. We're to go to him during those times and ask him for grace to endure the trial. But those trials, those crosses, uh, aren't ours to earn and gain. They are ours to embrace, and we do gain from them. We gain strength to make it through them in a, in a Christly kind of way. Thy death, not mine, O Christ, has paid the ransom due. Ten thousand deaths like mine would have been all too few. One death by the one Savior accomplishes God's purpose. 10,000 deaths by me or a million deaths by me isn't going to have anything to do with removing your guilt from you. But Christ, whose life and death is vicarious, is in the place of others. He is a sponsor. He represents others. So the virtue of his life and death can become ours. So that's why the, the, the writer here says, uh, 10,000 deaths like mine would have been all too few. It's not going to do anything like the one death of the one servant, of the one covenant that brings salvation to sinners. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails, save that which is of thee, to whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. I think all believers of all ages uh, could sing this, uh, given the information, of course, that we have, could sing this and sing it from uh, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That one gospel covenant revealed 
in a promise is slowly but surely by farther steps revealed and then finally consummated or historically ratified when Jesus comes and does his work for us. So hopefully that helps you think through the new covenant and the blessings of it and that Christ, the necessity of Christ for those blessings uh, for anyone before the cross, after the cross. Um, he is the only name, his is the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this meditation on these truths and pray that you would blow away anything that was um, not accurate according to your word and all the other stuff, cement it deeply into our souls so that we would be fortified, we'd be strengthened, we'd be better off having heard what we've heard. And now we ask for your blessings on the supper and the singing as we praise you for giving your son for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.